Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 12. Last week, I covered two items associated with the sacrifice of the red heifer, and also found in a few other places in the Bible, cedarwood and hyssop. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm diving into a book that's not part of the Bible, but that was mentioned in the book of Numbers. I'm also discussing Aaron's rod, the one that budded, along with the brazen serpent that Moses was instructed by God to make. And with that, let's get started. In Numbers chapter 21 is a curious passage that goes largely unnoticed. It reads, Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib and Subhah and the Wadis, the Arnon and the slopes of the Wadis that extend to the seat of Ar and lie along the borders of Moab. And what tends to slip by is where this quote was originally written in the book of the wars of the Lord. In essence, there's a lost book that gets quoted in the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, there are several books referenced that have been lost. 1 Kings 11 refers to a book called the Book of the Acts of Solomon. 1 Chronicles 27 mentions the annals of King David. The Book of Sirach, which Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox Church, among others accept as canonical, most Protestant denominations do not. Either way, this book, in the 13th chapter, quotes one of Aesop's fables, the one known as the Two Pots. There are a couple dozen other such examples. Of course, Aesop's fable hasn't been lost, but many of the other books have been, or at least not yet uncovered. I'll get to the other ones when I get to them. But for today, I'm focusing on this Book of the Wars of the Lord. Considering it's a lost book, there are few facts to be found about it. Despite this, there are theories. 20th and 21st century Old Testament scholar David Rosenberg posits that the book was written around 1100 BC. This would have been around the time the Israelites were wondering, post-Exodus. About 100 years earlier, British theologian Joseph Lightfoot suggested that it was an alternate title for the biblical book of Jasher. This missing book was mentioned in possibly three separate places, in Joshua 10, 2 Samuel 1, and 2 Timothy 3. The reference in 2 Timothy is a bit veiled. Do note that there is an early Hebrew Midrash tome that has the same name, but it was titled after the missing book in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. In the medieval Midrash version of the book of Jasher, the book of the wars of the Lord is mentioned as having been a collaborative historic record written by Moses, Joshua, and the children of Israel. Finally, in Exodus 14, God told Moses to write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This may have been a reference to the Book of the Wars of the Lord. And that's all that's really known about this missing book. The next topic I'm covering this week is Aaron's Rod, the one that budded then eventually is thought to have ended up in the Ark of the Covenant. The rod, sometimes called a stave, 
was a symbol of authority in that culture, symbolic of the authority a shepherd held over the sheep in his flock. It had previously made an appearance when the brotherly duo of Moses and Aaron were confronting Pharaoh in their pre-Exodus showdown. Backing up a bit, in Exodus 4, Moses had a staff by his side when he was confronted by God. That rod then turned into a snake. There are numerous examples throughout the Old Testament where this rod was used to show his authority over the people. Moses would use this rod to part the Red Sea in Exodus 14. But this part of the podcast isn't about Moses' rod, but Aaron's. Backing up to Exodus 7, it was Aaron's rod that turned to a snake when thrown down in the presence of the Pharaoh. In the next chapter, Aaron stretched out his staff and then struck the dust of the earth. When he did this, a plague of gnats ensued throughout Egypt. Then, the staff goes silent for a bit, at least until Numbers chapter 17. After the revolts of several Israelites, God tells Moses to have the head of each tribe to present a rod to see which one will sprout, and whoever's rod does sprout will be given authority. Moses places the gathered rods in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, it was Aaron's rod that sprouted, or budded. This provided the people with the evidence that it was Aaron's family, the Levites, that were to be the priest. Later, in Hebrews 9, so one of the books written by Saul turned Paul, we can read that inside the Holy of Holies was the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And that's where that belief comes from. Extra-biblical sources, in this case from Midrashic writing, claims that Aaron's rod was the same one used by Moses. But that wasn't all. It was also claimed to be the same as the one used by Jacob in Genesis 32 and then given to Tamer in Genesis 38. It was the staff carried by David when he killed Goliath. David would pass the rod on to his descendants, who would use it as their royal mace, at least until the destruction of the temple at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It was then, according to Midrashic writing, that the rod disappeared. Some believed that the rod would be wielded by the Messiah as a symbol of his authority over the earth, once again, according to a Midrash writer, they proposed that the rod was made of sapphire and weighed 40 siyas. And given that a sia weighed over 10 pounds, this would mean that the rod weighed 428 pounds. This would be just under 200 kilograms. It was also engraved with inscriptions commemorating the 10 plagues brought upon Egypt. Of course, without any sort of evidence, theories abound. Some hold that Aaron and Moses had their own separate rods. Others that Aaron used one rod in Egypt, the one used to facilitate the plagues, and it was a different, possibly later rod that budded. There's also a legend that Moses split a tree trunk into twelve parts and gave one part each to the twelve tribes. These would become the rods that were left in the tent of meeting overnight. Circling back to Moses' rod, some believe that this rod was originally owned by Adam 
and passed down through many, many generations to Moses. This rod, or potentially Aaron's, was said to have been created by God, created at the end of the sixth day of creation. This would mean that it was one of the last, if not the dead last, thing created. God would bestow it on Adam as he and Eve were driven from Eden after their original sin. It would pass from Adam to Shem, to Enoch, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Of course, with several intermediary stops in between. After Joseph's death, it was said that some unnamed Egyptian royalty took many of his personal effects, including the rod. Legend has it that the rod eventually ended up in the possession of Jethro, who then planted it in his garden. Similar to the Arthurian legend of the sword in the stone, after it was planted, no one could pull it from the ground. Some even say that to merely touch it was to put your life in danger. This was because God's name was carved on it. Recall that in ancient Hebrew society, it was forbidden to merely utter or write God's name. Fast forward a couple of hundred years to when Moses was a young man, an adopted son, residing in the royal Egyptian court. He murders someone and is on the run, escaping to the wilderness. At some point, Moses finds himself in Jethro's garden where he reads the name on the staff. He's then able to pull the staff from the ground. Because he was able to do this, Jethro gives Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage, having previously promised to give his daughter to any man who could pull the rod from the soil. And, with this story, it becomes a bit clearer why it was thought the rod held such high power. After all, it was created by the highest power of all, and seemingly destined for Moses' hand, eventually ending up the property of the first high priest, Aaron. This supernatural power is seemingly attested to in the New Testament book of Hebrews, along with additional Midrashic writing blossoming with buds than fruit, being stored in the ark, all of this added to the belief of the unusual powers. Which leads to a centuries-old question, where did it end up? To answer that question is to also solve the mystery of the ark's location. One believes is that King Josiah, with the feeling of an impending national ruin, hid the ark, along with its contents, the Ten Commandments, a portion of manna, anointing oil, and the rod. He hid these in a safe place that would be unveiled by the prophet Elijah after the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. Some believe this hiding place was a secret room in Solomon's temple, on Temple Mount. The temple was then razed and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonians. Christians have beliefs about the rod too, most in a symbolic sense. Clement of Alexandria, the second-century Greek theologian, in his first letter to the Corinthians, wrote about the rod, stating that each rod placed in the tent of meeting for the miraculous night, each one was inscribed with the name of each tribe. Then, the doors of the sanctuary were sealed so that no mortal would have access and try to fix the process. Clement's writing was similar to writings found in contemporary Jewish sources, no telling who wrote it first, or if it is an original story. Some consider it symbolic of Christ's virgin birth. 
to the point that the rod makes appearances in some medieval paintings of Mary. Finally, in a 14th century Christian Ethiopian text, the rod was broken in two places to form three distinct pieces as a possible symbol of the Trinity. The same text also claimed that the rod, when it originally bloomed, had done so without being watered, despite being withered. And that's it for Aaron's rod. As part of my ongoing effort to keep the topics somewhat similar, the next thing to be covered is not a place, but another thing. And this thing is the bronze serpent figurine found at the top of a pole, first mentioned in Numbers 21. In the Numbers narrative, after their exodus from Egypt and while wandering, the Israelites set out from Mount Hor, where Aaron was buried, to go to the Red Sea. Recall that they had to divert around Edom, and because of this, and likely many other perceived hardships, they became impatient on the way. Picking up in chapter 21, verse 5, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses set a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Fast forward a few hundred years to a passage in 2 Kings 18. It reads that Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestor of David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the pillars, and cut down the sacred pole. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, a name that at the time, or maybe in the years since, has become a bit derogatory. King Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah and the son of Ahaz. He ruled around 700 BC and had to deal with invading Assyrians. I'll cover him in far more depth at some point way in the future. For now, know that he put into place many reforms, including the destruction of the brazen serpent that Moses had made. But why would he do this? It seems the Israelites had taken to worshiping the bronze serpent, even burning incense to it. According to some sources, it's been posited that King Hezekiah gave it this specific name to label it as being profane, in an effort to remove the infatuation the people had seemingly developed for it. It had been somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 years since it had been formed, and over that time, its meaning, purpose, and role in Israelite society had changed drastically. The people had begun worshiping the idol, not merely using it to cure the bite of an unspecified pest. The king wanted them to begin to view the casting as being worthless, and refocus their attention on God, so he labeled it as a mere piece of brass, which is essentially what the name means. Nothing more than metal formed in the shape of a serpent. 
True to this, no references to this specific name, Nehushtan, can be found dating to any earlier than King Hezekiah. In this passage, sometimes you will see the serpent referred to as being brazen, meaning brass. Recall that several episodes ago, I mentioned the difference between the two metals, bronze and brass. As a refresher, bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, while brass is made of copper and zinc. Throughout the world, bronze was developed first, then brass. In this region, bronze was concocted around 3300 BC, but man-made brass, at least that intentionally produced, did not really come into existence until around the time of the Romans, so much later than the serpent. There was brass being used at the time of the serpent and even before, but it tended to be a byproduct and isn't what you'd recognize as the metal, so likely a mistranslation. There's even at least one translation that calls what would become the idol a snake of fiery copper. Overall, don't get too hung up on the material. In Canaan, at the time of the Israelites' wandering, the worship of snakes as a sort of deity, or at least as an earthbound representation of such a deity, was somewhat common. Archaeologists have uncovered such figurines throughout the area, especially in several pre-Israelite cities. These locations include Migadu and Sheshem, where two objects were found at each. Numerous cities in the region have produced one sample. In the Gospel of John, in the third chapter, is perhaps the most quoted verse in the New Testament. What tends to be forgotten, though, is the prelude to this quote. In the beginning of the chapter, we're told that Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus are discussing theology. After a little Q&A, Jesus tells Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Later, rabbinic literature would take a similar approach, and by writing that the people should look up to the God of heaven, for it is not the serpent that either brings to life or puts to death, but it is God. Then the writers would point out what is found in 2 Kings, that over the course of time, the people lost sight of the symbolic meaning and regarded the serpent itself as the seat of the healing power. They then made it an object of worship, and that's when Hezekiah stepped in. Then the rabbinic writers attempted to answer a different question. How did the brazen serpent last from the time of Moses to the rule of Hezekiah? They proposed that Asa and Jehoshaphat, the 9th century BC kings of Judah, tossed out many idols, an act I'll get to at some point. But they both left the serpent behind, somehow knowing that Hezekiah would use it as an example to the people. The Book of Mormon makes a reference to the serpent too, in two separate places. Essentially, the overriding concern is that the people needed the faith to trust that looking upon the serpent would be the antidote to the fiery serpents. 
Then the book makes the comparison to that of people looking to Christ in order to live spiritually. Throughout history, the image of a serpent-topped staff has made several appearances, some very renowned and long-lasting. One such is found on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican, painted by none other than Michelangelo, is a scene of the Israelites being delivered from the plague of serpents by the bronze figurine. Also, a basilica in Milan, Italy, has a Roman column that is topped by a bronze serpent donated by Emperor Basil II in 1007. Today, in the Negev Desert, in the modern country of Jordan, on Mount Nebo, in front of the Church of St. Moses, stands a monument of the bronze serpent. Also somewhat related, a very common symbol for doctors is a pole surrounded by a snake, but this tends to be more of a Greek origin. And that's it for the bronze serpent, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with a few more places found in the Book of Numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.